0: Your body grows bigger
1: Your mind must flower
0: It's great to
1: learn Cause knowledge is power it's Schoolhouse Rocky A chip off the block Of your favorite schoolhouse Schoolhouse Rock I'm just a bill Woo, you sure gotta climb a lot of steps To get to this capitol building here in Washington Well I wonder who that sad little scrap of paper is
2: I'm just a bill, yes, I'm only a bill, and I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill. Well, it's a long, long journey to the capital city. It's a long, long wait while I'm sitting in committee, but I know I'll be a law someday. At least I hope and pray that I will, but today I am still just a bill.
1: Gee, Bill, you certainly have a lot of patience and courage.
2: Well, I got this far. When I started, I wasn't even a bill. I was just an idea. Some folks back home decided they wanted a law pass, so they called their local congressman, and he said, you're right, there ought to be a law. Then he sat down and wrote me out and introduced me to Congress, and I became a bill, and I'll remain a bill until they decide to make me a law. I'm just a bill. Yes, I'm only a bill. And I got as far as Capitol Hill. Well, now I'm stuck in committee and I'll sit here and wait while a few key congressmen discuss and debate whether they should let me be alone. Oh, I hope and pray that they will. But today I am still just a bill.
1: Listen to those congressmen arguing. Is all that discussion and debate about you? Yeah, I'm one of the lucky ones.
2: Most bills never even get this far. I hope they decide to report on me favorably, otherwise I may die. Die? Yeah, die, in committee. Oh, but it looks like I'm gonna live. Now I go to the House of Representatives and they vote on me. If
1: they vote yes, what happens? Then I go to the Senate and the whole
2: thing starts all over again. Oh,
1: no. Oh, yes i'm
2: just a bill yes i'm only a bill and if they vote for me on capitol hill well then i'm off to the white house where i'll wait in a line with a lot of other bills for the president to sign and if he signs me then i'll be law. how i hope and pray that he will but today i am still just a bill
1: you mean, even if the whole Congress says you should be a law, the President can still say no?
2: Yes, that's called a veto. If the President vetoes me, I have to go back to Congress and they vote on me again, and by that time you're so... By old, that time,
1: it's very unlikely that you become a law. It's not easy to become a law, is it? No!
2: But how I hope and pray that I will, but today I am still just a bill. He signed your bill, now you're a law. Oh, yes!
3: Welcome to the Noted Bitcoin Podcast. This is your co-host, Pierre Richard. I'm joined with Michael Goldstein, a.k.a. Bitstein. How are you, Michael? I'm
4: doing well. Very excited about this one. Very timely. Important. Yes,
3: yes, absolutely. We're joined with Misha Gutentag and J.P. Schnapper-Casteris. Thank you, gentlemen, for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Excited yeah. Hi, to be. Pierre. Hi, Bitstein. So uh, today we've, we've got a number of different topics. We've actually got different topics uh, or additional topics uh, from uh, when we first scheduled this interview. Um, I wanted to have y'all on first and foremost um, to discuss the comment letter sent from Yale Privacy Lab uh, with regards to a regulatory rulemaking. Um, And I, I, I'm not the expert on regulatory rulemaking so I would be interested in in hearing the the background for what prompted um you to draft this letter and 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 publicize it and um I'll let you take it away from here you know what
5: what prompted this Sure well thank you again for having us this is such a timely issue and a lot a lot happening in the world of crypto regulation this season This particular comment letter was prompted by a proposed rule that FinCEN, the uh, Center for Financial Crimes at Treasury, and the Federal Reserve Board had proposed and released a draft of a couple of weeks back uh, that would implement uh, an aspect of the travel rule, which essentially requires all financial institutions to pass on information to the next financial, financial institution about you, the, the funds that are transmitted, the name of the transmitter, the address, the identity, et cetera, et cetera. Um, You know, there's a lot to unpack there in terms of what's been happening with the travel rule on the international stage and beyond. But this particular change would have lowered, significantly lowered the threshold to report all of that information about individual transfers and your identity from $3,000 to just $250. And in, in other parts of the rule, it actually muses, well, what if we just reduced it to $0 altogether and swept all of that in? And uh, what prompted this letter in particular, you know, these, the way notice and comment works is agencies propose a, a, a propose a rule, and they give the public, groups, individuals, consumers time to respond, in this case 30 days, to re- provide feedback, raise concerns, answer questions. Um, and what motivated this letter was over the course of a very detailed, set of proposed rules and analysis nowhere in that entire draft was the word privacy now for listeners of the podcast and uh, folks who are active in this space uh, you know this is there it's just loaded with privacy implications uh, at the public policy level at the individual level and so we wrote a letter on behalf of uh, the Yale Privacy Lab and Fight for the Future uh, addressing the importance of privacy issues and noting why it mattered, the privacy had not factored in at all here.
3: Yeah, and I was reading the letter and it really struck me that there's a common view, I'd maybe call it a myth, um, within the crypto world that regulators on principle are opposed to privacy, which just isn't the case. And um, I'd, I'd like for you to expand on that and kind of Um, what, what, you know, what, what are kind of the guiding principles that regulators are looking at when they're making rules as a general matter, not necessarily in this particular
5: rule proposal? Great question. So a a little bit, my rule of thumb for this is where you sit depends on where you stand. You know, there are a variety of different federal agencies which have different missions and different budgets and different, um, sort of interests and values, if you will. And, and so uh, I think you're right that it's, it's not, um, you know, it's not that there is necessarily always a steadfast opposition to privacy, but some agencies may just not view it as part of their mission. It's not important to them. It hasn't come up recently. They just forgot about it. And that's, in fact, part of what we raised in this letter is that uh, the omission of privacy uh, may also be a, a legal error in the issuance of this particular rule. Uh, because FinCEN itself has in the past analyzed privacy implications um, in, some, in some detail. Um, and so I, I think it, it depends on which agency you're talking about. He, you know, and it's supposed to run through a sort of interagency process where different stakeholders can, and different agencies can uh, uh, sort of raise different public policy issues. And I, we did not get the impression that that fully happened here.
6: Yeah, and just just to build on that, I think you can make an argument that you know privacy starts at the very beginning. That the United States Constitution would not have been ratified had the you know framers not been assured that privacy would be ingrained in those you know first ten amendments uh, passed just after they signed it, you know, into into existence. So I mean, privacy goes back to the beginning, um, and so, so for FinCEN, Misha, t- yeah, go I, ahead.
3: I, I don't want to get into t- too much of a. <laughs> philosophical argument. But uh, personally, I'm a natural law proponent. So to me, the beginning is before the Constitution. <laughs> um, but just kind of on principle, you know, philosophically, why why is privacy important for humans?
4: That's a great question. That's a great <laughs> Where question. do we begin?
5: Where do we begin? Um, can I kick this one off? Yeah, go for it. I think there are, uh, there are a variety, uh, sidestepping the natural law question for a moment. Um, you know, there are a variety of reasons. There's, there's some, I think there's a, there is a, a, a bundle of decisions and pieces of information that we as a society consider to be, um, very sensitive, right. About medical decisions, about personal autonomy, about your family, um, uh, uh you know, about, and, and, about the exercise of certain constitutional rights, privacy is also. I think we have to face it as a matter of American history, born of a certain distrust of uh, of uh, governments past and present. That uh, you know, there's a, there's an important individualist streak in the American tradition, and uh, and that the government is not always going to get it right when it comes to collecting information or making any number of other decisions, and we want to reserve. A certain sphere uh, of decisions and information uh, to remain private unless there 's a really good reason and, a, and a, an individualized reason for the government to get it
3: and you know we can we can go even trace it back to the Magna Carta right of um, warrants and searches. Um, right and uh, that angle of it. Why, why, um, so do do you think that there's an argument along those lines about the Fifth Amendment against self-incrimination that creates a really expansive privacy, right? I felt like that was absent from the argument, but I'm not uh, an expert on the matter. So maybe there's just better uh, arguments to be made.
5: Yeah, I mean, our letter cites The first, third, fourth, fifth, and fourteenth amendments, as you know, some of the various constitutional moorings for the right to privacy. Each of those have a little bit of a different uh, flair to them, I suppose you could say. But you know, we also have statutes on the books, all sorts of laws, several of which we cite in footnote six of the letter, explaining uh, ratifying the value of privacy uh, as a matter of statute. So we don't even. You know, I, the, I feel like FinCEN's proposed rulemaking overlooked um, all, of, all of that as well. And it's own I, prior rulemaking. Correct. Correct.
6: I, I had a computer science professor at Yale approach me when uh, I was going to law school about potentially writing a paper about um, cookies and other surveillance tools being quartering of um, soldiers. Uh, and I, I didn't get to write the piece of it, but I thought it was a, a really interesting argument. And so it's sort of, you know, a Second Amendment right to uh, surveillance self-defense and then a Third Amendment right to not um, quarter um, government cookies inside your home.
3: Yeah, and I guess pr- pragmatically, the, the nice thing about having so many um, precursors to privacy or uh, uh, precedents for privacy is that depending on the audience... Different precedents will be more persuasive than others. So, you know, for example, we could look at the, the, the pro-choice versus pro-life arguments, um, you know, for, for progressives to make an argument for privacy, um, and then the
6: Second Amendment for conservatives <laughs> for a right to, to privacy. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And, and what people say is persuasive to them is not always, you know, I'm sure you know ha- how they rule. So sometimes right. if you make, you know, an argument too that adheres too closely to the Constitution, a judge will suddenly be like, I'm no longer a textualist, you know, on a prudential matter. This thing, uh, you know, should go the other way. So I think it's important. You said, you know, why does privacy matter? I mean, it matters for a multitude of reasons. And it's really important that a, a diverse number of stakeholders are presenting why it matters to them. Um Another uh, maybe more
3: procedural question is, you know, we learned how a bill gets ratified right in school uh, with Mm. that schoolhouse rock. Uh, Mm -hmm. This this seems very far from that. Um, Why? Why is this not going through the legislative process?
6: Um, Yeah, I think you're raising a really good point. I mean, what we're seeing here is the the slow creep of the executive uh, agencies into uh, areas that used to be the, you know, uh, the domain of Congress, right? So it, ordinarily, based on Schoolhouse Rock, as you bring up, we would imagine this to go through. You know, the bill is proposed, it goes to committee, it gets voted out of committee, it, it goes to the floor. We have a real discussion. It goes to the the Senate, and then you know you reconcile it. None of these are taking place here. Here we have an unelected agency. Uh, we have a, a subdivision of the Treasury Department that just sort of issues the new rules or issues the proposed new rules. Uh, allows people to weigh in on them, but there's there's no real vote taken. Um, they will just take our comments. They have to respond to them, but they'll otherwise enact um, the rule that way. Uh, it's just an act of agent uh, executive power. And,
3: and they they've been delegated that
6: authority by Congress through statute. Um, yeah, through yeah. through the you know as as Peter Van Valkenburg and others bring up like the constitutionality of the acts that delegate this um, are. Um, you know, they're not, they're not entirely set in stone. We're not sure if the BSA uh, as presently applied is constitutional, but yeah, it was Congress who gave uh, the Treasury Department the ability to surveil transactions in
5: this way. JP, do you want to
3: comment on that?
5: Well, I, uh, Lisha summarized it perfectly. I mean, this is, <laughs> this, uh, there are a lot of different statutes that give various federal agencies the power to promulgate regs the 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 issue is that you know at at a certain point you can really find yourself in a slippery slope into major legislative debates that never happened. you know have we had a national conversation about data privacy? have we had a national conversation about data privacy law um whether as it applies to private companies or the or or the government's collection of certain data um I don't think so, and yet. We get sort of drip, drip, drip uh, of of one rulemaking after another that gets us closer to uh, closer to a certain result, uh, and that was why uh, we felt the need, and and uh, the two signatories to this letter felt the need to to weigh in.
3: Yeah, well, one thing that I would note is that you know, in terms of, I. I you, facebook facebook's libra has come up and there was a hearing about facebook's libra project and um in that hearing i heard a lot of different policymakers express concerns about privacy and so um you know it feels like whenever privacy does get debated um there's there's strong views for it uh and the views against it what what are the arguments on the other side right what would you say um, FinCEN's perspective is that uh, you know, hey, look in this context, national security and anti-money laundering are just way more important than than privacy, and that we'll we'll mitigate the risks with uh, our own uh, you know uh, data policies and encryption and all this.
5: Yeah, I think that's essentially the argument that the 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 value of this data is so important, uh, for national security. And at one point in the letter, they actually try to quantify the cost and probability of a, uh, of a terrorist attack and what that would mean as compared to the cost of implementing this rule as an administrative or operational matter within the, within major financial institutions. And yeah, I think that that would basically be, um, be the argument that it's cheaper and less you know, cheaper to collect a whole lot of data and let them, um, you know, try to find patterns and and suspicious activity and problems um, than it would be to try to request it on an individualized basis or not have it at all and and miss something.
3: So I feel like the the largest terrorist attack of recent memory was nine eleven. Um, if if we were to back test this. This regulation on that, um, I you know would it have picked up that the that there was funding going to train people to fly airplanes and and going towards purchasing razor blades? Like I, I feel like that might not have been picked up. But it, did, did they get into that at all, or is it pretty vague? <laughs>
6: a great question. Um, they do not get into uh, how this rule would have uh, prevented the 9-11 attack, although they do use that as their benchmark uh, for the cost of, of these terrorist attacks. They say, if the proposed rule reduced by 0.26%, the annual probability of a terrorist attack with an economic impact of $30 billion, the benefits basically outweigh the compliance costs, uh, which is sort of a strange way uh, to do uh, well, rulemaking reasoning. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And especially because the D- d- the, w- one of the challenges with terrorism is the asymmetry between the cost of making the attack and the cost of defending against it. Right? That right. Yep. Um, it doesn't seem like the right way to go about solving the problem is head on, <laughs> in this case. Yeah. Uh,
6: but yeah, can I can I propose an additional explanation for this rulemaking? Um, I had a friend who was in the military, and he liked to talk about loci of control, right? Everyone's acting within their particular locus of control. And if we think, if we can place ourselves in the, imagine ourselves in the seats of FinCEN, you know, FinCEN is tasked with preventing money laundering. Um, And so from their perspective, it's understandable why they would want as many tools as possible in their disposal um, to fight money laundering, including reducing the threshold for this type of reporting all the way down to zero dollars, uh, $0 as they you know suggest in this rulemaking. Now, it's, it's our job uh, to push back on that, because um, even though they're going to ask for everything, that doesn't mean that they should then get it. Because as you said, there's a lot of uh, trade-offs here.
4: One of the sh- many shocking things about um, you know proposals like this is the fact that the You know, you're talking about the costs of, well, if a terrorist attack happens versus a cost of preventing it, but not discussed is the cost of actually implementing something that keeps this information in any way safe and secure, (laughs) which in turn, you know, you can... You know, think of FinCEN as this giant honeypot that it itself is uh, open to a sort of, you know, cyber terroristic attack in which then uh, people have information on every American and how to go about, um, you know, uh, managing their lives because they know all of their preferences and behaviors and all of that. But those, those costs are not discussed at all.
6: Yeah, that's a, it's a, great, that's a great point. Um, I mean, the data, Coin, CoinDesk actually had a really good piece, uh, I think published today, said how FinCEN became a honeypot for sensitive personal data. And they described that the data uh, that FinCEN is collecting is, you know, as far as, you know, people know, is kept forever. Um, and there is a cost to keeping that, to keeping that secure and to, you know, not having it, we saw in the OPM hack and others to not having it be, you know, used against Americans uh, when you collect that much data
3: right who 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 will police the guardians in a way um although do they are are there already um federal standards for all this i'm i'm assuming that you know they they've got a way of keeping databases secure but I mean
6: the o p m hack should make it clear that whatever standards they've they've put in place is is, is presumably not enough i mean this is this is a, a dangerous amount of information that's collected, and if there aren't mandates on them uh destroying it after a set amount of time, I think the risk only grows right
4: and like a bitcoin node the you know <laughs> it's not it's not open source for everyone to like audit the security uh principles so
3: yeah, yeah, and the o p m hack um you know it it, it is a national, it was, is a national security problem. Um, and this, you know, if, if they were to collect all of this data, I'm assuming this would uh, also involve um, people with national security clearances, right? That all of their data would be getting sucked up into this system. Uh, you know, pe- members of the military, uh, members of Congress. Um, and sure. uh, all of this could be at the disposal of, the Chinese Communist Party, right? Where if, if they want to blackmail someone, they might be able to access some payments data that got hacked uh, from FinCEN. And then, uh, you know, we could think about the cost there, right? What, what's the probability of that happening? And what kind of cost would that have to our national security if someone were to be blackmailed? Absolutely.
6: Right. And you won't see that, you won't see that sort of cost benefit analysis in the current version of FinCEN's rulemaking. But when they revise Uh, I would love to see uh, what you're bringing up um, analyze as well. So uh, what's kind of the
3: roadmap for, for this rulemaking? Uh, Do they have some dates attached to it and, and the process going forward?
5: Well, they have, Vincent has time to, uh, to now read through and respond all to all the comment letters uh, they got. And before finalizing the rule in terms of, uh, you know, what point it's, It's a real thing. It's published in the Federal Register, et cetera. And and now once it's published, that's not necessarily the end of the story. people can and regularly do challenge rulemaking under what's called the Administrative Procedures Act, a federal law that says when when we give this immense power to federal agencies to promulgate rules, it has to meet some basic requirements. It can't be arbitrary and capricious. It can't be contrary to law um, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I think there is a, and we mentioned this in the letter, I think there is a, um, uh, there is a problem in the way that this rulemaking has been advanced without any consideration of privacy that may open it up to litigation or claims under the Administrative Procedure Act, uh, down the road. We shall see.
3: You know, I, am just thinking that, um, libertarians here in the U S we, we complain about the federal government all the time, but, uh, we should also be very grateful that these that there's an appeals process right that there's there is still um a way to to be heard uh and, and it contrasts it to a lot of other countries where uh we've seen anti bitcoin rules just get enacted overnight and there's not any appeal process to it at all right um so we got to be grateful for that um now uh you know, let's, let's set that aside because there was another, and I don't know if, if we want to jump to this right away, but did, were there other comments on, on this particular issue uh, with FinCEN? And, and also, actually, I want to go back to what you said about um, uh, the, the constitutionality of, of the current system, right, of the current rules. Um, and are, are those open to challenge or do you think those
6: are, are set in stone? Um, I, you know, I think it's a really, it's a, it's a good question about the constitutionality of these things. And it's sort of, it's, it's interesting and almost a little quaint to read, um, you know, Justice Douglas's dissent in the, in the case that uh, upheld the constitutionality of the Bank Secrecy Act. Uh, He, he muses as to, to him in his dissent, he's saying that this Bank Secrecy Act is unconstitutional. And to Justice Douglas, he says, suppose Congress passed a law requiring telephone companies to record and retain all telephone com- calls and make them available to any federal agency on request. Would we hesitate even a moment before striking it down? I think not, for we co- condemned in the United States First District Court the broad and unsuspected governmental incursions into conversational privacy, which electronic surveillance entails. And he goes on to compare uh, surveillance of telephone calls to surveillance of bank records. And it's sort of, I, I think there's something kind of ironic about that because ultimately Congress did pass an act, the 2001 Patriot Act, the same thing that brought FinCEN under the treasury, um, Congress did pass an act that required, you know, retention of all of these detailed records. Um, and so I think there's, there's a question of whether or not our, our expectations of privacy have changed um, and whether or not, um, you know, at what level... At what level, when if FinCEN lowered the threshold to, to zero dollars, if FinCEN required, you know, th- this proposed travel rule is just for cross-border transfers, but let's say it was for domestic transfers too, if FinCEN required reporting for transfers from individual to individual, at what level are our constitutional rights implicated? And I think these are um, serious and outstanding questions. And
5: depending on the scope of the rulemaking, you know, people may bring these challenges.
4: You know, what the cool. cots- oh, sorry, no, sorry, sorry, please continue.
5: I was just going to add, and, and you know, the Coin Center comment letter about this particular rule did a, a very good job, I thought, at flagging some of the potential constitutional issues that could, uh, that could come about as a result of, of this draft down the road.
4: Okay. I think in yep. the, the context of uh, all of this, the idea, I, I remember when the, the Patriot Act came out, one of the very controversial things was uh, they'd see all the library books you were taking out. <laughs> It just, that feels quaint. Um, (laughs) Simpler times back then, you know. Yeah, absolutely. You Uh, guys, uh, I think one last question that I have on this is, uh, you mentioned that this would have a disparate, in the letter you mentioned that it would have a disparate impact on on certain Americans, such as those who are sending small, um, you know, remittances back to uh, family abroad and such. Um, Can you talk a little bit more about what, you know which groups of Americans would be most harmed um, by policies like this?
6: Yeah, I, c- I can speak from personal experience. I used to be a high school teacher for four years. I taught high school in Houston, Texas, and in communities where uh, you have a lot of families that some of the family lives in the United States and some of the family lives abroad, commonly Mexico and other and other countries. And they're making money in the United States and sending money back home. And so when FinCEN proposes lowering the threshold for these cross-border um payments they're going to wrap up a lot of these payments that um you know people need every penny and the the increased fees you know with these increased compliance costs that banks are going to take on as a result or would take on as a result of this rule would be passed on um to the people making these small dollar transfers um, so I think there's a there's a, disproportional, uh, there's a disproportionate effect on especially like lower income immigrant populations in the United States that are, again, not addressed at all in FinCEN's rulemaking, despite them being required um, to conduct these disproportionate impact analyses.
4: It's quite incredible that they uh, have the gall to devalue our money and then make it more costly to even make use of that less valuable money.
6: Yeah. yeah. Others have others have brought up that a lot of these rulemakings, you know, they don't contain any sort of inflation adjustments, and I think that's telling in its own way too, because that means that every year uh, the net widens, uh, so long as the Fed is hitting its inflation mandate, or its inflation perceived inflation mandate, I should say. <laughs>
3: um, yeah, I, I agree. And w- one of the other questions I had is from the perspective of. Um, someone who wants less terrorism, right? Who wants to prevent terrorist attacks. What are alternatives, right? Alternative ways of, of approaching this issue uh, from a financial perspective? Or is this really, it, it, are, are, are we being uncreative? Is I guess my question?
5: Uh, it's a great question. and And certainly that's, I used to, uh, and I still do participate in a uh, crisis simulation that happens every year at Georgetown Law School, and, um, and these sort of counterterrorism scenarios come up not infrequently, and it's important to remember that there is a whole range of tools at the federal government's disposal to investigate, uh, track, and, go, and stop uh, uh, you know, terrorist attacks or, or movements or activities not just this, right? And and also, I mean, putting, we haven't even touched upon the legal authorities that the intelligence community has with respect to activity that happens entirely offshore, outside of the United States. So for example, your earlier example, a uh, question about, uh, about 9-11, right? There, There are all sorts of things you could do to try to In retrospect, obviously, as covered by the 9-11 report to try to understand and get a window into what was happening in Saudi Arabia, where the majority of the hijackers came from before the attacks. This is not the only tool. And there's a variety of pieces of information. And in addition to subpoenas and warrants and more individualized legal process, I mean, a warrant is really an incredibly powerful tool. Let's not forget that for US citizens and non-US citizens alike and um and it's it's not exactly impossible to walk into a federal court and uh, and get a warrant on someone given in, in a in a scenario like this so there are, i would just reaffirm that there are a variety of tools of course fincen is an a very important player in this regard and um but they're not the only player
4: oh, <laughs> We we usually just have one guest, so uh, (laughs) Misha, please. uh. Oh, I just wanted to to add
6: the perhaps uh, well-known point that mass surveillance has a shoddy track record when it comes uh, to preventing terrorist attacks. And so just because FinCEN references somebody making a a couple hundred dollar payment to Syria does not mean that this uh, bill will be an effective uh, way, or this rulemaking would be an effective way of combating terrorism. I think we have plenty of reason to believe that it would not.
4: It almost seems like they operate in this, you know, theoretical realm of like, well, wouldn't it be nice if we just have all this data and then we can sort back through it um, Mm -hmm. instead of, you know, thinking about the more like what is actually effective, which requires, you know, very targeted investigations. Yeah.
6: Right. Right. Yeah. And FinCEN's mandate, you know, it's, it may be a lot harder for FinCEN to start like food and, and economic development programs and other, uh, you know, really effective counterterrorism programs. And so because FinCEN can't do that, you know, they do what they can. And, and here they're collecting more data or trying to. The,
3: the, the conversation has been focused on terrorism. Is this really about terrorism? If we think about why money gets laundered, isn't it primarily about tax evasion, illegal tax evasion?
5: Yeah, I, I think if if we were gonna, as a matter of scale, it would be uh, tax evasion, um, essentially siphoning money out of the state as a form of resource extraction, whether it's on behalf of uh, oligarchs or others, uh, and and um, and aspects of the drug trade.
3: Right. So so let's let's uh, let's stay focused on the former, I guess, because yeah. the. The latter is a whole other thing as well, but um, right, right. Um, You know, in terms of at that scale, it just seems like the the proposed threshold. Uh, you know, are we interested in people who evade taxes in the hundreds of dollars? I I don't think so. I mean, I, I'm assuming they're not structuring and layering and all of this uh, by breaking right. their payments down, but um, it also just doesn't make sense to me from that perspective.
6: I think that's a really important right. point right. to be raising
3: um, and then for for drugs it, you know I, I get that there's people who buy drugs in the hundreds of dollars, but I think that in terms of what federal law enforcement should be targeting it should be and frankly let's also talk about you know legalization right instead of um, further violating people's privacy, but in any case um, Can we also talk about the stable act? Is that something that y'all have uh, gotten smart on or should we hold off on that to to another episode? Yeah, let's get in on it. So my understanding is that um, if I say I owe you $1 on demand um, under this act, that would be a a banking activity. Uh, Is it already a banking activity? What makes it a banking activity? Um, But am I misreading the act? Am I reading it too loosely? So I'm interested in hearing the
6: experts. Well, I'd be first thing, I'd be careful of your use of the word dollar uh, because the act <laughs> does Im- impose restrictions on, on who can use that word, which I thought was a little bit... Um, uh, look, we'll have plenty of constructive things to say about the act too, but I thought it was interesting. And the, it, it, it prohibits people from using the word dollar unless they're you know a nationally chartered bank. Um, but, uh, of course, there are Canadian dollars and Australian dollars uh, and other dollars that are not U.S.-based. So I think that's one of the, the uh, you know, several ways in which the act ex- is, is, is written expansively, perhaps too expansively, to capture all kinds of activities. Just
4: regulate the entire Spanish language, since dollar <laughs> exactly. comes from dollar. <laughs>
3: yeah.
4: Oh, good point. Yeah. <laughs> um,
3: are, are there other uh, forbidden words like this in law,
6: where if you use that word, you're automatically... Uh, it's typically governed through trademarks, right? Which you have to be mm-hmm. really careful with because trademarks are kind of a, a restriction of speech. Do,
3: but do governments have trademarks? Do the do does the federal government trademark the word federal, for example? Does Federal Express need to change their name?
5: <laughs> <laughs> there are some limitations on the intellectual property rights that the that the federal or state government uh, can have, um, and I'm not sure about. I think FedEx is probably. In the clear, or at least the statute of limitations, has run out. Federal on that. Reserve should change their name. They're technically no. I won't get. <laughs> <to that. laughs>
3: um, and, and but you you also you can't call yourself a bank, right? If you call yourself, if I just started Rochard Bank and got that incorporated, that's a problem, right?
6: Right, right. But and this encompasses you know a lot a lot more than that, right? I think the used I mean, you know, query whether or not people view their PayPal balances. Uh, as bank deposits, or you know even whether people are confused as to whether the tether dollars are um, equivalent to their Wells Fargo dollars or their Venmo dollars or the cash dollars in their hand i don 't think it 's clear at all that that the that the consumers who this bill aims to protect are are that confused about that issue
3: what 's what 's motivating this bill what 's kind of what the underlying um, you know public policy reason
5: so i I mean, uh, Professor Gray has spoken and written about his view on the systemic risks here and the, and the troubling history in, in, under banking law of socializing the losses um, uh, and privatizing the gains. And, and that's an understandable concern as a historical matter. What I think is really going on here is this was originally a reaction to Libra. And you know, it's it, this feels like ancient history in COVID time, right? But if you, if you go back to the Libra hearing that you mentioned earlier, I mean, that was a it was a really very uh, very powerful reaction from all three branches of government within a week or a week and a half of of the Libra announcement. And uh, and I think that that is part of what has uh, interested some of the representatives who have co-sponsored. This bill. Now, obviously the ambit of the draft legislation is much broader than Libra uh, and it, and it sweeps well, in all sorts of other.
3: They, they can't write a bill that says
5: Libra in it, right? There might be an ex post facto law problem there, but they can, there are many laws that have baseline requirements in terms of they apply to really big corporations and not smaller corporations. They apply to the California uh, consumer privacy act, for example has revenue requirements or number of employees, right, as sort of a baseline. And the, and the substantive requirements that apply to startups and companies under that law, for example, shift depending on are you tiny, are you medium-sized, or are you large? Um, so you could do that.
6: Yeah. Or from approaching it from the other way, you could explicitly carve out like, uh, you know, exemptions for people who are below X amount of revenue or below it, you know, and the bill does not do these things. And so as a result, it, it sweeps in um, a lot of activity, as you've noted, uh, well beyond, well beyond Libra.
3: Right. Um, and, and the other part that I find interesting is that this is not the only uh, controversy that Facebook finds itself in. I think that <laughs> um, it, it, has just been engaged in antitrust legislation at a federal and state level that that was Mm -hmm. just, you know, breaking news, I guess. Yeah. Um, So this is a pretty wide ranging set of problems that policymakers have with Facebook. Is it because Facebook is becoming a de facto sovereign due to its scale?
6: That's a, it's a really interesting way to put it. And I think it's also worth noting that the initial backlash to Libra, Facebook did propose a, a sort of a new currency, which I think is a lot different in design than what we're looking at today, which is sort of a uh, warmed over, um, again, dollar-denominated stablecoin. Uh, especially if, sta- if, if Facebook had gone ahead with the, that original plan, I think um, you could make a, a much stronger argument that it was acting as its own sovereign because it would have issued its own sovereign currency.
3: Do you think that if they tried going through the front door of getting a, you know, federal bank charter or acquiring a, a, a federal bank or starting a Wyoming SPDI, you know, why there's, there's ways to become a bank in, in the current framework. So it seems like um, they should do that. No. What's the hang up there?
5: You know, I'm generally not sure it would get approved uh, at the federal level right now. As you mentioned, they they're all, there are a lot of other legal issues overhanging uh, overhanging Facebook right now, um, and I'm not sure that would be a, a walk in the park. It's, I mean, it's not a walk, getting a, getting a federal bank charter is not a walk in the park for anyone, and and not as a matter of cost, but in terms of all the hoops you have to jump through. I mean, I think it's also given the reaction we saw last time, even if uh, even if the federal regulators might view them as having satisfied all the relevant criteria, Congress might jump in and try to put a stop to it in, in another way.
3: To me, the irony with that is that if we go back to a Rohan stated uh, public policy goal of less systemic risk, right. Facebook has a market cap of $786 billion. Mm-hmm. They would be the best capitalized bank in the world and the, the strongest from a financial perspective. Um, like, uh, you know, it, it, it strikes me as very paradoxical. They, they seem like they would reduce systemic risk and help stabilize the banking system compared to what happened in '08, where the incumbents didn't quite handle it, their capitalization well.
6: I think that's a really good point. If I were to give Rohan maximum credit, he might say that Facebook would act or could act in the banking sector the way they have um, in, in other ways. And this is outlined in the antitrust complaint, which is basically, you know, once they amass a certain amount of market share, they start behaving much differently. So initially they were able to uh, build a big, strong user base. One of their strengths was offering users uh, strong privacy uh, tools. And then basically, as they eliminated their competitors, eliminated or or bought them, uh, they started eliminating these privacy tools. And so you could imagine Facebook maybe starting as a responsible bank. And then once, you know, Libra takes over the world, then uh, behaving more more irresponsibly. That might be one of the concerns motivating it.
3: Why is the free market not solving this problem? Right? Why? Why do we need antitrust in what is arguably kind of the lowest barriers to entry market in the world of just online social media. In terms of Facebook's, uh... Facebook's dominance in the marketplace. I mean, are they seen as, as being the dominant player, right? I, I think they are. Uh, Yeah. But um, if, if they are, if they are truly not serving the interests of their users um, you know, their users have very low switching costs. They can, In fact, they don't even have to switch, right? You can create a profile on a different social network. Um, I understand that there are network effects, uh, but it doesn't, uh, you know, when I think of a natural monopoly, I think of the gas line or electricity lines going to my house, not to the multitude of websites that are at my fingertips.
6: Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the problems has to do with, I mean, what you talked about, their capitalization. They, they're they able to exert their huge reserves of capital to squash any competitor. So although we say, you know, someone could just jump ship, I mean, the fact is uh, it's, it's harder and harder to jump ship because as soon as somebody becomes a competitive threat, uh, Facebook uh, is able to gobble them up.
4: Uh, gobble them up in what way?
6: Uh, to purchase uh, their service and either shut it down or bring it under uh, Facebook's um, control or, or, bring, you know, they, I think, I think it was WhatsApp where they mm-hmm. promised they wouldn't merge Facebook and WhatsApp data. And then, you know, after a little bit, after purchasing WhatsApp, they did merge those things. And then, so, um, you know, we continually see these fake Instagram is the same way.
5: There's a little bit of a data privacy transferability issue here too. I mean, have you ever tried to download and move all of your data off Facebook and, and move it onto? <laughs> You know, an open source or self-hosted equivalent, Uh, right? Right. Not so, not so easy. I mean, you guys can hit me up later on my MySpace page, but um, (laughs) it's easier said than done.
4: Yeah,
6: I would also love to see. You know, I don't know if you, if this dates me, but I remember GeoCities in the Mm -hmm. beginning of the web offering everybody the promise of their own personal website. And I think for better, for worse, and I would argue for worse, Facebook has sort of become that for a lot of businesses, just the default website for the businesses. And it's difficult if you're not a Facebook user, like I'm not a Facebook user sometimes to even access some mm-hmm. of these Facebook pages. And so it's, it's closing off the web. I would love to see uh, alternatives that made it easier for people to, to self host and bring back that sort of nineties internet. Yeah. Aesthetic.
4: I do tend to have this, um, opinion that people should try to exert more agency where they can. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, with this is like, oh, I can't access this content. You know, uh, it is within consumer ability to demand that the, uh, you know, brands and companies that they like uh, share content in a way that's not walled off in the Facebook garden.
5: Mm -hmm. Right, right.
6: It's just harder than ever. It's harder for consumers to make these demands. People have a ton of different competing, uh, you know, um, competing demands on their time. And if we think about, you know, things like breaking breaking up monopolies in the past, I think the the understanding, for better or for worse, is that, that is that the, the world got better, the U.S. got better, telecommunications got better when we broke up Ma Bell um, in you know it was at the 60s. Um, so you know, I think there's a similar attitude among lawmakers now. And if and it's possible that antitrust is like a pendulum right? We mm-hmm. swung away from it. Certainly in the Obama years approved tons of mergers. And now we're seeing it swing back the other way. Maybe they're trying, maybe we can make a better world uh, through breaking some of these big bad boys up.
3: And isn't that a uh, more tried and true way of, of doing it than, than passing some experimental legislation uh, that's being promoted, <laughs> proposed by Rohan? You know, it, is, is this legislation um, kind of, uh, when I read it, it seemed to be very expandable so that, um, you know, under a different, a lot of different contexts, it could be read a lot of different ways um, and, and thus apply to a very wide set of things all the way to the Bitcoin network itself and the Ethereum network itself and I when I first read the law my immediate reaction is well okay you know render unto caesar like this this is their money okay we get it sure why not and then when I saw on social media uh Rohan answering questions from the Ethereum community it became clear to me that he's got a way bigger vision for this legislation yeah <laughs> and uh that's when I actually read the law itself and thought about it and I was like no this This really could be used to apply to anything that people wanna use as money or as a medium of payment.
4: Yeah, right down to, you know, you are not allowed to run a node without getting a bank charter. Right.
6: <laughs> yeah, I think you're totally right to worry about that. And, and so one thing I often think about when I read uh, legislation that I think is broad is, um, you know, one of my personal idols is a, a kid named Aaron Schwartz, who helped co-found Reddit and, and was working on a project related to uh, freeing up access to academic articles. And he was prosecuted under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which was passed in the wake of hacker hysteria. And this act, you know, makes felons out of ordinary computer access, and you basically rely on the uh, benevolent discretion of prosecutors not to uh, bring these cases against you. And so, in Aaron Schwartz's case, uh, my understanding is that JSTOR had even dropped the charges. There was not, uh, you know, a victim here that wanted to press charges. It was the government going ahead and making an example out of him, turning him to a felon. Uh, for plugging in a computer at MIT and downloading articles and you know he ultimately uh, killed himself and you know a lot of people under the weight of the criminal justice system it, it, we don't want we don't want to make everyone felons right It's really important to write law that um, that enables us to act freely and, and you know explicitly criminalizes uh, that which we want to uh, to stop T- To me, you know uh, another
3: part of this is that the the other Goal, I've heard Rohan say as this legislation, you know, he's mentioned the dangers of shadow banking, the systemic Mm -hmm. risks from that. Um, His other point is about counterfeiting and that counterfeiting paper money, uh, you know, U.S. currency, physical currency, is illegal today. Uh, And um, tragically. For uh, most people. For most people <laughs> sorry is federal reserve no, is, is limited to a certain set yeah. of individuals within the country tragically mm-hmm. um, you know we, we had the case of George Floyd, who, due to a combination of police brutality and uh, anti counterfeiting laws, you know he, th- he was trying to pass off a twenty dollar bill allegedly we, i don 't know what the mm-hmm. if, if that turned out to be true or not, but uh, in any case. Anytime that we criminalize something, we bring about it the threat of lethal force at, you know, the hands of agents of the state and that that's something we should take very seriously, especially when, in my view, we have a technological alternative to this where we can actually have uh, anti-counterfeiting technology that is by all accounts pretty perfect or strong for the foreseeable future it's called cryptography and the you know maybe we should focus on advancing that technology to prevent counterfeiting rather than advancing the law and and criminalizing an increasing number of activities
6: yeah absolutely and just to, to expand on that when you talk about counterfeiting and and I, I, you know, not to get too semantic, but I do think there's a real difference between counterfeiting U.S. dollars, as in passing off a paper as a U.S. dollar that is not a U.S. dollar, and counterfeiting in the way that it was used at least on Twitter here, which is to to describe, you know, tether dollars as a counterfeit U.S. dollar. I I I just don't I don't see them as the same instrument. I don't think people are confused and thinking that tether. Um, is the original U.S. dollar. It's- but I wanted to bring up something related to the Stable Act and uh, you know, get your guys' opinion on it too. If we're talking about consumer protection, you know we haven't really seen a run on these dominant stablecoin issuers that are, that are brought up, whether it's Facebook, uh, Libra, or um, Tether. Uh, but we have seen um, exchanges that claim to be solvent in terms of their Bitcoin-issued uh, IOUs, and it turn out not to be. And so whether it's Mt. Gox or Quadriga, Uh, You know, it was interesting to me that this act or, you know, that we haven't seen other acts that are at least getting into the realm of um, having exchanges show their deposits or instituting any sort of reserve requirements uh, for the Bitcoin IOUs that these exchanges are issuing.
3: Yeah, I, I guess um, I, I can't comment on that because I'm employed by an exchange. So, I'd, <laughs> you know, uh, we, and, and we have one of the best uh, uh, crypto attorneys, uh, Marco Santori. Uh, so he, he'd be able to, to maybe speak more to that. Um, but I, I really think that my background is accounting and financial accounting and any business can find itself upside down, insolvent, right? Um, where their liabilities exceed their assets. Um, To me, you know, it's not really specific to an exchange or to a financial institution Mm -hmm. that you can have um, an act of God that impairs your assets and you have to write them down to zero and you have lots of liabilities outstanding, whether it's in the form of accounts payable or long-term notes, um, and, and that they're trying to make demand deposits a special kind of liability, right? That mm. that rises above liabilities that businesses and individuals, you know, t- take on with total freedom, right? That there's there's really mm. uh, surprisingly few constraints in in that regard for you know a business to to do that. Um, what is it about the demand deposit, right? Is it is the, the the instantaneous? Um, availability of that cash that, that causes so much anxiety.
6: Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I also noted that, that the bill requires um, stablecoin issuers to immediately redeem or to be able to immediately redeem all outstanding stablecoins on demand. And I just thought there was a little bit of an irony there in that um, by you know placing this requirement on stablecoin issuers, they impose basically a more onerous reserve requirement than are placed on commercial banks. Which, you know, everybody knows right. that Wells, Wells Fargo can't immediately redeem all their all their claims on demand, but the stablecoin issuers, uh, you know, would be required to.
3: Uh, ironically, they're
4: on the side of sound money. You know, they're, they're, they're going for 100% <laughs> reserve ratio. Uh, when it suits them. Yeah, yeah when it's crushing, when, when it means, like, you know, force everyone else uh, to play by standards, you don't even go by. Yeah.
5: Right. And potentially at a competitive disadvantage. I would also just add, if, if one of the major drivers here is, is, uh, the is cyber security or the security of stable coins. There are other ways to address that problem, right? Other, not at the point necessarily at the point of issuance, but for example, you could require all major stable coin issuers above a certain level to submit annual plans about, or you know have their sisto available to be interviewed by the relevant uh, banking authorities right and so to the extent that uh, security or counterfeiting is is really a, a concern here and i'm not sure that's that's the primary driver uh, there are other ways to to slice that as well
3: and i think the counter argument there is well what about these decentralized stable coins right there isn't anyone to, to bring in uh, to, to you know, the, the developers might be pseudonymous on the internet. Right. Um, and this is a contract that is self-executing, you know, a smart contract that doesn't, you know, require the, the fiat legal system, let's call it. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> even though I don't want to be uh, disparaging it. Um, and, and so their argument is, well, you know what? Anyone running that Ethereum node or I really want to emphasize that Bitcoin node, because we're increasingly seeing smart contracts on Bitcoin uh, using discrete log contracts, which create a stable coin by establishing an outside price oracle for USDBTC. Um, so the Rohan's argument is, you know, hey, those those nodes would be illegal as well. Um, do you think that the Ethereum people, you know, it's a bigger problem for them because they're already there their stablecoin um, die you know ha, has uh, really matured um, that they and they also I think have a harder time running nodes so they might be more centralized with regards to the nodes and it would certainly be a problem for someone like consensus right that is running a node as a service and they would instantly be a bank under this was that your reading of it of, of Rohan's comments as well
6: they would at least have liability. It looks like under the, now Rohan saying it, it wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't be held against average node users or, or whatever. But the way the bill is written is that it gets at, you know, anybody who is, um, who is engaging and who otherwise engages in any stablecoin related commercial activity, including activity involving stablecoins issued by other persons without obtaining written approval in advance, and on an ongoing basis from the FDIC, the Board of Governors, the Fed, and a federal banking agency. Um, so, if your node is validating transactions that are seen as, um, you know, uh, counterfeit USD, um, in in the words of some of the bill writers, then uh, yeah, you could be held liable. I mean, that's that's the risk.
3: Are, does does that kind of uh, tangential liability exist in other parts of the law? Because it seems kind of, um,
5: I causally remote i don't even know how to word it <laughs> you're talking my language pierre yes there is uh in tort law there is something called proximate cause which refers to if if, if there's a tort or someone has been harmed you ask not just uh, where you caused and can you describe the causal chain you know you start you you pressed uh, return on the space bar and 50 steps later my computer crashed right but the, the question behind proximate clause is: Is it close enough? Do we consider it reasonable as a matter of law to hold you liable for having caused a certain harm? And I think you're putting your finger on uh, an important issue, even beyond the context of uh, node operation, which is in terms of open source software and liability of open source software. We don't. Tr- I was a Linux contributor in a prior life, and and you know a lot of our mission, our practice. Uh, centers around open source software and open source projects of all different kinds. And that's just not how we think about the liability of individual software developers, whether it's uh, people who are running a shared service or distributing code on GitHub. I mean, no one would say, I hope not, you know, if your Linux kernel crashes and corrupts your hard drive as a result, is Linus Torvalds personally liable for the error in the kernel uh, that resulted in your data loss. That's just not generally how we think about liability in the context of open source software um, and shared projects, and and for good reason. And and uh, you know some of that's solved as a matter of contract law in terms of when you when you accept a an open source license, you disclaim uh, you know you disclaim all sorts of liability and damages. Um,
4: Like the MIT license, which Bitcoin uses, which is just like, we take no liability. Just like run everything at your own risk. Best of luck. Right. Right. Have fun staying poor. Sorry for your loss.
3: It's not always the case that you can get out of
5: liability by saying that, right? Mm -hmm. That's right. And there are certain circumstances where Congress can override or modify contract law. I'm not sure that would really work work here. But just as a normative point, I guess I'm trying to underscore that that, that is not how the open source community has uh, structured itself. And, and th- that's part of the reason why the open source world has flourished, I think, that yeah. we don't worry about, uh, you know, if, if, all this sort of infinite chain of potential liability for software developers.
6: Yeah, and we've seen people in the space, academics, float the idea of liability for, you know, Bitcoin core developers, for example, and and another example, which I you know keeps me up at night, uh, is the idea that at some point there could be. Uh, An attempt to hold people liable for validating transactions that come from, in the American context, come from OFAC sanctioned countries, right? So we know that Iran has national Bitcoin mining. If Iran uh, puts a, uh, you know, tries to send a transaction and is clear about which transaction is theirs, um, are we responsible for making sure our nodes don't validate that transaction Um, on the blockchain. And and I'm not sure that this bill does that explicitly, but I I think it's really good that people are animated by it because I think we need to be vigilant against um, that sort of expansion of the law. And potentially it's chilling effect on node operation, which I think is integral to the security of the Bitcoin network.
4: I'm sure Rohan will personally be uh, setting up a GitHub account to be uh, pushing uh, PRs that... Address these concerns rather than <laughs> rather than just talking in in well, academic I, sense
6: <laughs> I will say that Rohan does do more than this bill, right so he was a fan of our FinCEN letter he 's been working on on digital privacy. I, I think that you know if Rohan had his way, there would be. Uh, private digital cash, at least if we take him at his word. And I I see no reason not to. So, you know, one of the things that I I think is cool about this industry is that you can disagree with someone on one issue and and find a strong ally with them in another. And so when he comes back and writes an an awesome bill, perhaps uh, Pierre's Bitcoin standard bill (laughs) or or any other, you know, I think that he'll find a, a cheering section from Bitcoin Twitter where once he found enemies.
4: That's very true. And, uh, you know, thank you for, you know, for sharing that information. And I think this is a good example of what you just described because, uh, suddenly, you know, uh, Pierre has been vocal about it, but you know, all of us, we kind of find ourselves like we're teaming up with Ethereum in the sense where it's like, you know, I think Ethereum is a total scam, but they have a right to, uh, you know, run their node software. Yeah.
6: Yeah. Yeah, definitely.
3: Um, the other part, I think that, um, might help. So I think that there's kind of a vocabulary problem, which is what is a node doing? When I look at the fundamentals of it, a node is witnessing transactions and blocks, right? It is testifying about them. So I, are there any laws against that that make it so that you have an obligation to not witness a crime? Is there an obligation to look away from a crime?
5: Ever? To not
3: witness a crime. Uh, how would you know that you have witnessed but, that you're not witnessing a
4: crime if you don't? Yeah, I, but Pierre, it, I think I would, <laughs> I think I would like slightly disagree with that because uh, how would how would a S F happen if there was merely witnessing?
3: That because you are changing what you are, what you are saying that you want to witness, what you will, you know. I see, and so yeah. the.
4: So in this case, couldn't they just say that now you're witnessing, you must, you know, uh, not witness stuff that comes from this address, and you have to ping to a central server to get the blocked addresses. And so it's like, uh, you're not allowed to witness.
3: Well, even are you even allowed to witness the address itself? Right? Shouldn't that be forbidden knowledge?
6: I think you're bringing up a lot of interesting points and I know you raised this in a tweet, Pierre, that the best defense is a good offense. You know, you could imagine if we're worried about this issue, writing a bill that it, that explicitly uh, carves out a, a space for people to be witnessing transactions without uh, being held liable for somehow participating in them. I think that would be important for uh, protecting the security of node operators for sure.
3: And then just emphasizing that, um, Signing and broadcasting a Bitcoin transaction is already illegal if if that transaction is illegal right that it's it 's already mm-hmm. illegal to do that um, but testifying or you know re- receiving one and really the i, I don 't think that receiving one can be illegal because how would you you 've got to read it in order to know if if it 's bad or not if it 's on the naughty list um,
6: I don't know. It's, it's a, I do find it fascinating.
4: I see your point there, yeah. yeah.
6: Mm-hmm. I don't want to FUD too hard about Lightning, but you know we can expect those arguments to be uh, at least piloted, potentially, against Lightning node operators, that, you know, that they're passing along um, transactions that may or may not be illegal. And I think that will be a, one attack factor that we, want, that we want to make sure we're vigilant. Um, you know, As one of the oldest
3: Lightning routing nodes and one of the largest... <laughs> I, I look forward to having your assistance in our, you know, Supreme Court appeal before I uh, get a life <laughs> sentence for unregulated banking and all uh, associated crimes.
6: We'll, we'll be there.
3: I appreciate it. Well, okay. So we've already taken up more than an hour. So, um, you know, this, this is going to be a very expensive call. I know that you'll be sending these (laughs) shortly. Um, but, um, I, we're really grateful for your time today. I did, did we not cover any, uh, pressing matters that you want to discuss or, or maybe a book that you want to shill or, uh, your, your social media and, uh,
6: associated activities. Um, well, you can find me on Twitter at Misha Gutentag. I had a question, and I was sort of curious what bills you guys wanted to see. So I know that on 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 my short list, um, you know the 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 Tax Fairness Act of twenty twenty. You know, it was introduced. It had three co sponsors. It never got out of committee. I think it is a it is a should be a top priority of the Bitcoin community, Ethereum community, the 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 whole crypto community to make sure that we're not turning every everyone who spends. Uh, virtual currency into some sort of tax cheat. It's almost impossible, you know, without really strong coin control uh, to do the kind of accounting that is currently required. And so, uh, although I think it's, you know, there's a lot of things that are important, deserving of attention, like I saw coin centers working on something relating to staking, reward, taxation. um, I would love to see the industry really unite around something simple, straightforward, and and just get those bills on the scoreboard. And I think that's how you build uh, a, a positive record. So I agree um,
3: on the tax side. I think there's lower hanging fruit, which is the IRS uh, asking people if they've got cryptocurrency ac- activity on the tax return, mm-hmm. which yeah. to 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 me is um, um, not like not appropriate, right? It's not an appropriate question to ask people. I don't think that um, they should be asking that. I think that you know, if if you have a if you have a taxable transaction, you do have an obligation to tell the IRS. But yeah, absolutely. The, if you don't, then you don't, right? Uh, and, and so um, I think that, uh, I, I don't know why it's the case even that there needs to be a bill passed to remove that. In my mind, there ought to have been a bill passed to add it. Um, but uh, now that it's there, I, I think that there should be some, some way of, of getting the IRS to reverse that and to, to respect people's privacy.
6: Yeah. And, and I think what you're referring to is that IRS adding, I think it's the first question of the, the upcoming tax return mm-hmm. is whether or mm-hmm. not you acquired any interest in virtual currency. I, I think the question, it's out, uh, it, it applies to non-taxable events as you're acquiring, just acquiring a virtual currency. And the IRS, after a little bit of pushback on this, issued a clarification on the tax question. Uh, but it again, didn't answer the very straightforward question. If you just buy Bitcoin and hodl it, uh, are you required to report it on your tax return? And I, my hope is that the IRS issues further clarification or that the, or that the question is challenged. I totally agree. It's, it's, it's overly broad and another invasion of our privacy to be asking about these totally non-taxable events.
3: Um, so that, I hope that answers your question. That, that's, <laughs> that's the first thing. Um, and then I have... Um, probably thousands of, uh, amendments to statutes, to the constitution, uh, that I'd like to propose, but, um, not enough time today to
4: discuss them all.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well,
6: Uh,
4: you should find a good lawyer for that.
3: Yeah. But I, you know, I also think that defense is important, right? So, um, making sure that, um, bad bills don't go through and, and that bad, um, uh, Regulatory rulings um, also get addressed uh, is important, and I'm really grateful that um, y'all took the time to, to write this comment letter um, so that uh, we can defend our rights.
5: Well, the pleasure was all ours, and thank you for highlighting it. The one point I would, uh, you know, underscore uh, uh, about this bill and perhaps the regulatory posture that we find ourselves in going into 2021 is, is a bit of a wake-up call, I think. Uh, you know, that we should not necessarily assume that the status quo, whether it's with respect to data collection or stablecoin regulation, will, uh, will continue. There's also, we didn't even get into this, but serious concern about uh, what uh, Treasury, the current Treasury leadership may do around unhosted wallets, right? And I think one of there, I see two lessons uh, from the current moment. One is that, you know, motivated, skillful lawyers and activists and law professors can introduce bills. Now, you know, moving a bill, getting a bill uh, uh, voted on is a different matter. Uh, but maybe there's more uh, that we can all be doing in terms of organizing and, and reaching out on both sides of the political spectrum. And, and I thought Jeremy Jeremy Alaire had a, you know, had a really good thread about this on Twitter four days ago, where he talked about you know stuff is gonna get real. Uh, he didn't say stuff pretty soon, and uh, in terms of Crypto regulation, and there is an opportunity, I think, and I hope, to work with uh, both sides of the political spectrum uh, and find common ground. So I hope we can do more of that. And you know, from my time in D.C., I found you know politics is the art of the addition. So we, we really need to put people together, uh, even if we may disagree on on particular sub issues. Um, okay, time time. so
3: I've I've you you you've had. You've motivated me to come up with a, a bill idea. All right. There's legislation about witness protection, right, and victim rights. And I would argue that a node operator who um, receives an illegal transaction has, you know, has one foisted upon them is both a witness and arguably a victim, and that we just need to add like two lines right um and say hey this this also includes people who witness crimes on cryptocurrency networks by operation of software
6: nodes on the open internet can i ask a a related question though can they be compelled to testify there you go um
3: i i would say yes but it's unnecessary because the government should be running nodes And that the government has access to that public data already. And why is Library of Congress not archiving the Bitcoin blockchain? So maybe we
5: add that bill in there too.
4: Yeah, I love it.
5: <laughs> I like it. I like it. It's funny you keep using the word testify too, because that is, that's a part of the Sixth Amendment and the Confrontation Clause, that if you have a, in a criminal prosecution, so you have the right to be confronted with witnesses against you. And so if, if someone hypothetically were, uh, were prosecuted, for processing or somehow being involved in, in or witnessing an illegal transaction, who would, there's the self-incrimination question for sure, <laughs> and who would testify against you, right? A machine cannot testify well, against you. Can the, is it illegal Yet. for the government to process Yet. illegal yes. transactions?
3: I guess the government would have sovereign immunity, so they're allowed to run a node even if they are
5: processing illegal transactions, right? <laughs> So under, right, and, and under, but I, my read on that is under some Supreme Court decision called Melendez Diaz about drug labs, you'd have to have someone, a representative from the government, physically come into court and personally testify, I run this node. I manage it, and I witnessed Pierre, uh, you know, processing this transaction he should have for every single criminal prosecution. And that is a non, that's, that's a non-trivial burden, but that's the, that's the reason the founders passed the Sixth Amendment. Excellent point.
3: Excellent point. All right. Well, uh, I guess on that note, we'll wrap it up. Um, and, um, did, Oh, I think that, you know, I I gave you all the opportunity to, uh, to give some social media and then Misha had his excellent question about what bills to propose. I, you know, I think we've got an extensive number of bills now that we can get started on. So we need to raise money for this, right? Is that what needs to happen when you have like a, um, what, what, what vehicle, uh, I know that Coin Center exists, obviously, but do we need a, a pack, a super pack, a mega super pack?
4: I
5: would start at an even more basic level, honestly, which is, I, you know, I think we need to put pen to paper on mm-hmm. some bills and thinking through uh, political strategy before we, you know, before we start talking about, um, I'd love to see. I'd love to see the political ads you would write, Pierre, and would put them on. we put them on network television. I think they would be, what, given your meme ability, I think they would be highly engaging. But I think, from a lawyerly perspective, we got to start with you know what what concrete changes are we going to actually make, and you know talking to some staff as mundane as it might seem. Yeah, start with the staff on Capitol Hill and go from there.
6: Yep.
3: Okay. Well, um, I look forward to the intro emails. Uh, and, uh, we'll, we'll get, get the ball rolling. Um, and yeah, again, thank, thank you for your time. Uh, and I'm sure that this will not be the last comment letter that is, uh, written by, um, you two. So, uh, anytime you're always welcome here. This is a show for node operators by node operators. And, uh, it's really important to us that, uh, it continues to be legal to, um, to, to testify.
4: I just hope that uh, if it does become illegal, they at least put us in the same cell so we can continue recording.
3: <laughs> or at least,
4: <laughs> like, speaking very loudly so the rest of the cell block can hear our podcast live. We'll be in the same FEMA camp. Don't worry.
6: <laughs> All right. See, see you
4: there, boys. All right. See you there. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thanks again. Thanks Thank
3: you
7: so us. much. Next question. Please mm-hmm. discuss how discipline equals freedom can and should apply to one's financial life. Thanks.
0: From <laughs> all us, Jupiter. Uh, d- y- obviously, if you wanna be financially free, you gotta have financial discipline. That's just the way it is. So here's, it's, it's just simple, not easy. Save your money, boom. Yep. That's number one. Don't buy an, ex- here's one. Don't buy an expensive car until you own a piece of property. That's just a basic rule. Interesting. Yep. If you're driving a Mercedes um, S Class from 2015.
7: Is that a good one to ask? It's, it's a very good one. Yeah.
0: It's a very good one. But it's also $120,000. Mm. But if you're living, if you're renting, the wrong move. Mm. Sell that thing and buy a piece of property. Mm. A car is a depreciating asset, a property is a property is an appreciating asset. Try and put your money into your appreciating assets. Spend less than you earn, boom. Stay off the credit cards, boom. Invest your money in something. I like to invest money in me. (laughs) In things that I'm gonna do. That's what I want to do. Yeah, I I, I want to invest money in things that I know and understand and what better do I know and understand than, than things that I'm doing for yeah. people that I know or things that I'm involved with so That's what you gotta do you want to you want to get your money taken care of you want to you want to have financial freedom You got to just have the financial discipline. That's that's all there is to it and work hard You know work hard make things happen, but your your major gains you know most people don't become rich by their salary right they become they 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 earn their wealth they gain their wealth through bigger things like buying properties you know we got a jujitsu player at the at the academy a girl and you know a year ago she was kind of talking to me about oh well you know you know she just got married and blah 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 and we started talking. I said, "You, you, you know." She said, "What the think about moving." I got this condo, and I was like, "We started talking about buying properties." And boom, she disclosed on a like a four four unit property in San Diego. And the day she got the keys, she was making four hundred dollars a month. She went from paying nineteen hundred dollars a month in mortgage. The day she made. She got the keys all of a sudden that she rented that place out. She's got three units She's living in with crappiest unit and she's got those things rented out and now she's making four hundred dollars a month So that's a that's a delta of what twenty three hundred dollars a month in the black. Yep That's impressive. Yeah, and it took her a year to get done But she did it and now I said I, she's like oh, I'm so happy. I'm like that's cool start saving start saving for your next property. Yeah. I'm like the market's going to take a downturn, you got to be ready if it doesn't, if it does, but you got to be ready to make that next move. So start mm-hmm. saving your money, start paying that thing down, start saving your money, start saving that next down payment. That's where your wealth gets established, is in these long-term strategic moves that you make and you know, I'm no financial expert. But you don't have to be a financial expert to know to save your money, to spend less than you earn, um and and property to me is a good thing to invest in. It does go up and down. You know, and there's a lot of people that got crushed in the in the market downturn in 2007 In 2008 and I was in the military So I was buying houses and I didn't even know that the market downturned It didn't matter to me because I had a steady job and I just bought those properties just to just to have properties I wasn't buying them to flip them and sell them and all that no I was just like okay in some some time in the future Somebody's gonna be paying me rent and it's gonna go in my pocket and that yeah. sounds like a good plan to me
2: Because <laughs> yeah. they're not
0: making any more real estate by the beach, right? Mm. Um, So if, so Yeah I'm not a financial genius talk to somebody that is smart talk to somebody that understands finances, but Save your money spend less than you earn don't be renting if don't be renting a place if you're buying a, out buying a Mercedes s-class right. Or a 7 series or a Range Rover yeah. buy a little piece of property buy a little thing
7: yep.
0: Buy a little thing don't, don't just just go buy that little something get in there get yeah. it started
7: Yeah, man. I like this invest in yourself Yeah Because, and invest in yourself, that's such a broad term, right? Mm -hmm. It's such a, and actually it's kind of started to become like a little, like a cliche catchphrase, invest Mm -hmm. in yourself. But if you really think about that, you, yeah, you invest in yourself. You don't go buy, you know, I used to work in the nightclub industry, Mm -hmm. right? So I'm, and I'm now, I'm looking with my mindset now, looking back at the people I used to deal with. Mm -hmm. I used to see people come in there every weekend. And spend a lot of money. I don't know. Maybe mm-hmm. some of them are already a rich, or, or but I know that if that's what you're spending your money on, you're going out and essentially just buying drinks, mm-hmm. and buying nightclubs. <laughs> yes, there's no essential. You know, that's what you're doing. Yeah. You're, th- you're throwing <laughs> thinking back, like thinking back five years ago, you spent all your money, not all your money, but you yep. spent a bunch of money on yep. drinks. And what you have literally nothing to show for it. And in most cases, you there's it's going to mess you up in, in one way. Yeah, you're going to do something you regret or whatever, potentially. So, think of that same five years and be like, dang, what if I started these two things that in my you know prediction is going to help me in five mm-hmm. years? And let's say you did that five years ago and you did it, I don't know, you even practice it like an hour a day, whatever it is, even just improving your knowledge on. The economy or something i don't know anything anything that improves your knowledge five years later you could you could be essentially an expert at it absolutely so th- now now just consider now what is it that you should have got into because you probably have a handful of interests mm-hmm. that are pretty cool to you even if it's like playing guitar i don't know whatever but if you can make it something that you can anticipate in five years it's going to be your if you're talking about financial stuff it's going to help you make money mm. didn't do, Do that. It. Do that yeah. thing. Don't. And I, I I harp on reality TV a lot, but I think it kind of deserves it because you don't learn much reality TV. Yet you lost like that hour. Mm-hmm. And if you spent that hour, and really you could kind of keep watching reality TV if you want, but just spend that one hour doing something that you anticipate. If you're really good at, it would help you financially. Do that thing for one hour, and then I like it. One day is going to come. You're going to think back. Oh, look, just the same way I'm thinking back of the five years ago. I mean, in my case, it's was more than five years ago. But just the same way I'm thinking back of those people at the nightclub industry, the same way I'm thinking back about that, you're going to be thinking back at yourself and you'll be like, dang, I'm so happy I got <laughs> into that, you know?
0: Yeah. And there's all kinds of things you could have done. I mean, I look at the money I wasted over the years in the bars. It's ridiculous, you know, yep. being a young seal, out getting after it with the boys. Thursday Friday Saturday and the Sunday that's how we used to roll yeah that's how we used to roll and it was just hey we'd show up I'm the richest guy in the world yeah I have all the money that I ever need and I can buy whatever I want that's what every night was like so not wise don't do that
7: yeah and I'll even all Go concede, out, have some fun. It's cool. You can still kind of right. do it. I'm just saying, think of that. Yeah. Think of what you're doing right now. And you're, cause for these people and for these people I was talking about back when I used to work in the nightclub industry, they are really technically they are committed to spending their money committed to it. Yeah. If you're doing something to every single week for years, you're committed to it. So just take one of those hours yeah, or take maybe 10% of that money that you're spending or 25% all of it Whatever and put it in something that you anticipate. Yeah, and, and the other
0: thing is I mean Invest in yourself is like actually build something actually build a little company, you know, make something That's what that, that's what I was meant. You've got another perspective, which is also very viable and makes just as much sense I was literally talking about you know from your perspective Oh, you like guitars cool figure out how to make a cool guitar stand at your house You know, and then see if you can get that thing produced and then oh, it's really good. Maybe we start running production Let's do that. That is infly not only not only will you possibly end up with some kind of a product that sells Mm -hmm. But you'll have learned something you've had fun. You created something for the world You've you've learned the lessons that you learned about building it and getting after that's all gonna be worthwhile as well Mm -hmm. so there's no this this I'm not saying this um, with Regards to that you're gonna Come up with this product and you're gonna get rich. It's not gonna happen. It's not gonna happen But can you use that to build knowledge? Can you use that to gain experience that will then compound with other things in your life and eventually make you Financially free because you had that discipline Absolutely,
7: Answers yes